Morning. I'm Janet, if we haven't met. Okay, uh, long reading today. We're looking at chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. So if you uh, have your Bible with you, if it's on Church Bible, it's uh, page 962. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen behind me. Chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older, we- older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those wid- widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead, even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them, so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are well worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good good deeds are obvious. And even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not, should, should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves.
Thanks. Uh, good morning. It's good to be here again this week and go through 1 Timothy. We got two weeks left to go in this series, so let's pray and then we'll get into it together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for your grace to us. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather together this morning and be reminded of all that you are and all that you are doing uh, in our world and in us. Lord, we pray that this morning as we open up your word that you would challenge us that you would shape us, that you would change us, that you would comfort us, and that you would do this work in us. We pray today for your glory and the good of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's official. We are, as a society, addicted to uh, reality TV. I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, but reality TV is basically all free-to-air is these days. So you've got dating reality, Right, bachelor after bachelor after bachelor, intermarried at first sight, into whatever other dating reality there is. We got cooking reality. Uh, it feels like Master Chef runs all year long. I don't know what even happens in that show, but it's still is it still on? It feels like it's still on. Uh, we've got uh, my, uh, kitchen nightmares. You got all this cooking reality, but then there's also what I want to call underground reality TV. It's the kind of reality TV though you have to dig for. So there's a reality TV show called Dance Mums, right, which is the uh, story of mums of kids that dance, right? Now, sounds maybe not interesting and guarantee it's not interesting, but that exists. There's also one that I found out this week called 15 and Counting. So I don't know if you heard about this, but it's a reality TV show that follows uh, families who have at least 15 kids. Uh, I also found out this week that uh, from that moment in 2012, there was the Radford family who this year, uh, last year actually had their 21st child. Of course, you know, he was an accident. Um, the youngest always is. As the youngest, I can say that. Um, but, you know, this is what the show is. You go around and you watch uh, 15 and counting and this is what you get, just reality TV on, I don't know, family. Now, we're obsessed, right? We love it. We're uh, kind of addicted to reality TV, so much so that it's basically all there is on TV. Now, this week, interestingly enough, uh, an article came across my Facebook feed, which was talking about the science behind why we're addicted to reality TV. And uh, as I was looking into this article, it's interesting. They were saying, you know, we love it because we feel like we can actually relate to these people. Like there's a sense when we watch it that, you know, even games reality, right, Survivor or whatever else, feels like we can actually relate to these people. But then their conclusion of the article was kind of interesting and fascinating and, and in many ways revealing. And this is what the guy said. It was a psychologist and this is what he said, the reason why we are addicted to reality. He said this, reality TV is the ultimate escape. We get to see lavish lifestyles outrageous arguments, and never-ending drama. We don't have to think about the problems we have in our real lives, and we get to weigh in on the choices and mistakes of a population that was foreign to us before the reality TV era. Now, what he says is quite revealing, right? He's basically saying the reason as a society we're addicted to this stuff is because we want to escape from the mess of our own lives and weigh in on the mess of someone else's life, right? Now, how I, I kind of think that's kind of challenging to think about that and revealing to, to me to go, okay, this is why we're addicted to it. But I think what he's also putting his finger on here is an issue that's actually not just for those people who like watching reality TV. This is something for all humans. When we think about engaging or escaping the mess, one of those two options is easier than the other, right? Like if, if we think about our problems 
If we think about either escaping it or engaging in it, one of those options is easier than the other. It's easier to escape, isn't it? It's easier to run away. It's easier to flee from the mess, even if it means, I mean, especially if it means watching reality TV. It's easier to escape than engage in the mess. Now, this is challenging because as we think about church life, uh, I mean, you know, my aim this morning is not to guilt you into stop watching reality. In fact, I think you should, especially if it's 15 and plus. You can probably support families who need your help. So my aim is not to guilt you into thinking that, but to recognize that when we gather as a church, we're gathering as mess, right? So we call this series Living in the Mess. Ross already touched on it this morning, that, that actually when we gather as a people, that this moment this morning is not us escaping mess. In fact, in many ways, this is adding to the mess in our lives because when we gather, we got different people here with different opinions and people who are going to probably hurt us. We've got different baggage going on here. We've got, you know, at difficult times as we gather, this is mess. And yet, as we've seen this series, God calls us to live in the mess, to engage in the mess. And so the question we want to look at this morning is, if our inclination is, if it's easier for us to escape the mess, what does it look like for us to engage? What does it look like for us to enter into the mess here as a church? What does it look like for us to engage in the mess? Well, in our Bibles today, we're going to look at this passage here that Janet read out for us before. And what we're going to see is Paul wants us to see what it looks like for us to engage in the mess. And we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. He gets at the first point here. Paul says this, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So what does it look like for us to engage in the mess, to enter into the mess that is church? Well, what we're going to see in this passage is four things. And here is number one, we treat each other like family. The first way that this plays out for us to engage in the mess is that we treat each other like family. Now, this idea of us being family is not a new idea in this series. A few weeks ago, we looked at how we are the household of God, right? So we are not like a family, but we are family. The people next to you are not strangers or acquaintances or people you see once every few weeks. They are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. This is family. But for us to engage in the mess, it means we treat each other like family, right? So it's a di- there's a difference between me calling a guy at my cafe brother and how I treat my brothers, right, in my family. There's a difference between the attitude and the action. And so what Paul is saying here is we treat each other like family. Now, the reason we're family, again, we've seen this in this series, is all because of what Jesus has done. So over and over again, Paul has labored what Jesus has done, right? We saw week one, chapter one in this series when Mikey gathered, you know, spoke to us about his family of origin stuff, if you can remember that long ago. He was talking about family, but he was saying the thing that gathers, unites us, is that we have Jesus who died to save sinners of whom I'm the worst, right? We saw week two, we have one mediator between us and God, the man Christ Jesus. So he stood in between us and God. He was our ransom. He paid the price. And because of what Jesus has done, we are united. God adopts us into his family where we call God Father and he sees us as children. But what this means is that sideways right? So horizontally, we are family. Not like a family, we are family, and so we need to treat each other like family, where our attitude translates into action. Now, what does it mean for us to treat each other like family? 
Well, I mean, lots of practical things. I mean, if, if you think about your family, maybe it means, you know, you can kind of translate, bring that over. But Paul actually does give us a couple of practical ways that this plays out. Right? So for a younger man, for Timothy, he gives two practical examples of what it looks like to treat people like family. Number one, to a young man, he says, older, treat older men, don't rebuke him harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. He's saying to the, to the young men, treat older men like fathers, don't rebuke them harshly, encourage them, exhort them as if he were your dad. He also gives another example, which I think particularly for young men, and it was with younger women. He says, treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. You know, the, the temptation is, right, to think of younger women as, you know, what can we get out of them? But what Paul is saying is, no, treat them as sisters, right? Well, you're not trying to use them, but you look at them with absolute purity. You fight for them as you would your younger sister. Right, Timothy gives some practical examples, but as we think about it, obviously there's more practical examples for how we can treat each other like family. For me, when I think about my family, I think about a couple of things. I think about celebrating family, right? So I grew up with three older brothers, and once you get out of kind of being a kid into adult, and you know, when something good happens to my older brothers, I'm not like envious of that. You know, I'm not jealous of what happens to my brothers. In fact, I celebrate it. In fact, I, you know, sometimes been caught boasting about it because when my family wins, I win, right? That, that's what happens with family. When we treat people like family, we celebrate what they do. And so I want to champion and celebrate my brothers. I mean, can you imagine if that was kind of our attitude here at church? Where when something good happened to people here at church, we championed that, we treated them in such a way. Right, that's what I think about with celebrating. I also think about, you know, with my family, you don't talk badly about your family, I remember when I was, um, when Elizabeth and I first started dating, my dad um, said to me that one of the things I cannot do is talk badly about my girlfriend at the time, but my wife. He's like, I'll never talk badly about your mum. And, and it was a good example of how to kind of follow, but it was also kind of this example of how to treat your family. Don't talk badly about your wife or your brothers or your, you know, sisters. You champion them. You fight for them when other people speak badly about them. Again, can you imagine if that was kind of our attitude here at church, that we fought for our family. We treated each other like family. We weren't caught talking badly about each other behind our backs, but we were fighting for them. Right? Can you see how this kind of attitude translates into action? So we can't just look to the side of us and go, yes, they're family, but no, we look to the side of us, we look around us and go, okay, brother, sister, mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, grandson, whatever it is, and then we treat them like that. We actually engage in the mess by treating each other like a family. So the first way that this plays out for us to engage in the mess is that we treat people like family. What's the second? Well, we see this from verse 3 to 16, actually. And it's that we care for those in need. And this is seen specifically in verse 3. He says, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. The second way for us to engage in the mess is that we actually care for people in our need, uh, who are in need. We care for people in the church who are in need. It is our responsibility to fight for them and to look after them. Now, we, you know, we have to admit there is a contextual thing going on here, right? Paul is speaking about widows in this instant, and it's not that we shouldn't care for widows, but it was that there was a particular issue going on back then. See, back in this day uh, for widows, um, it, the responsibility to kind of care financially for the elderly often fell on the church. 
Okay, so it was kind of like the church had to pay the pension. So the context of this is that Paul is saying to Timothy, make sure you care financially for those who really are in need, right? It's kind of the recognition. Church can't care for everyone. So let's make sure with the limited resources we have, we are looking out for those who are really in need. Okay, so what's the context? Well, let's look at it. He's pretty circular in this argument, but what we basically get is widows who are in need and widows who aren't. And he spells that out. So we can see here, and I've kind of put it on the screen for us. I know it's a little bit small, but hopefully you can kind of get the sense of it. So the widows who are in need, uh, we see this in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 9 and 10, and verse 16. And basically what Paul is saying here, there's a little bit more to it, but basically those widows who are truly in need are those who are committed to church and committed to God and have no other way to provide for themselves, right? They're all alone. They have no other people to provide for him. That's who the widows who are in need, and it's the church's responsibility to look after them. Then he goes into the widows who are not in need. And again, right, there's a little bit more to this, but basically we see this in verse 4 and 6, 11 to 15, and verse 16. And, and basically what we see is the widow who's not in need is the widow who has people to look after her. She has another way to actually be cared for. She's also not really committed to God or to the church, right? So she will happily give up her faith for the sake of marriage. The widow who's not in need is also a younger widow who has the potential or the chance to remarry. Okay, so that's kind of basically what it is. The widow who's not in need has a chance to look, be cared for in another way. And what Paul says to Timothy is, look after those who are in need. And if, if, you, you know, if you can, don't look after those who are not in need. Right? Care for those who are in need. Don't care for those who are not in need. Now, as we understand this context, what's going on, this contextual issue, how do, what does this mean for us? Because the reality is, times have changed a little bit. You know, we have a great social welfare system. It's not like the church pays the pension anymore or, you know, we have super. So how do we kind of deal with this or understand this? Well, as we've seen in 1 Timothy, when the context fades, we've got to ask ourselves, what's the principle here? Because principles are timeless. And the principle here is, right, what we see in verse 3, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. The principle here is care for those who are really in need. Take responsibility for those who are really in need. Look after those in the church who are actually in need and care for them. Right? So what does this mean for us as we care for those in need? What does it mean for us as a church here at Southside to care for those in need? Well, it means two things. Number one actually isn't for us as a church. It's for us as individuals with our own immediate family. Okay, so I don't know if you saw verse 4 there, but he says, um, if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should these children should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents but but see this next line this is pleasing to god so the first challenge for us is to actually care for our immediate family so the encouragement today is if you are someone who looks after your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa the encouragement here, here is it's pleasing to god keep going Keep pushing on in the way that you are caring for people. It can be tiring, it can be exhausting, but continue to do that for this is pleasing to God. But then, of course, this is a challenge to us as well, right? It's a challenge if we're not, to actually recognize that our responsibility as people is to care for our own family, 
to look after our mums, our dads, our grandparents when they're in need, right? So that's the first thing that it means for us. But the second is just simply the most obvious thing from verse 3 to 16, where to care for people. That the responsibility to care for people in need falls on our shoulders. That we are to actively care for those in need. And, and what does this mean? Well, it means lots of practical things. It means m- making meals for people and babysitting. It means caring for them physically if we can, you know, like mow their lawn or, you know, if we can, give them a job. But it also means emotional support. We, we get alongside people. We send them a text. We give them phone calls. We let them know that we are there for them if they want to hang out. It's also spiritual support. Where we get alongside. We pray for people. We read the Bible with people. We look after them. We help them to keep trusting in God in their need. It means lots of practical things, but I think the biggest thing this means for us underlines the practical side of things. We actually just own it. We own it. We own people's care. We own people's problems. When people say that they are in need, we don't try and palm it off to other people, but we take responsibility for that. And when we see church in need, we recognize that's our issue. See, the temptation is to escape the mess. The temptation is when someone tells us that they are struggling or in need to go, someone else will sort this out. But what God is calling us to is to engage, to enter into the mess, to see when someone is in need, that's our responsibility. Now, of course, what this should remind us of is Jesus, who himself, when he saw our mess, didn't leave it for someone else. He entered in, he engaged in the mess for us. But the biggest thing here is that we actually just own it. We take responsibility. As a church family, we take responsibility to care for those in need. So number one, we treat each other like family. Number two, we engage in the mess by caring for those in need. What's number three? Well, we see this from verse 17 to 24. Number three is we value our leaders. This is what it says from verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone, so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious. And even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. That whole section is about leadership. And what it means for us to engage in the mess is that we value our leaders. Now, of course, generally, we value our elders, our leadership team. But Paul is specifically focusing here on those whose work it is to direct the affairs of the church and to labor in preaching and teaching. So, I hope you can appreciate the awkwardness that I have in this next little bit to speak about this passage, right? Because this is a bit weird for me to get up here and say, you need to value me, right? It's a little bit strange to do that. I hope you can appreciate the weirdness of it. I've been at uh, Southside for a little while now, uh, full-time for four and a half years, and I can actually say I've never preached on this passage before. So if this is your first Sunday, this is not my hobby horse, right? Uh, This is the nature of working through books of the Bible. And besides, I think we've actually worked through harder things than this in the book of 1 Timothy. So this should be an ease, but please just appreciate the weirdness and the awkwardness of it. 
But what God is saying, what Paul is saying here, the third thing it means for us to enter, to engage in the mess, is that we value our leaders. We value our pastors. Now, how do we do that? Well, he says they're worthy of double honor. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean double pay, but what is double honor, right? What's the, what does double honor mean? Well, what we see is the first type of honor is the type of honor that's like respect. We value them. The second type of honor is financially. Okay, so that's what we get from the two scriptures that he gives there. Don't muzzle an ox and pay a worker his wages. So the idea is we value our leaders in two ways. Firstly, financially. Secondly, with respect. So let's kind of dig into that weirdly and awkwardly. Um, Financially, what does it mean for us to financially honor our leaders? Well, it simply means we pay them. Okay, so the idea to pay pastors wasn't some smart pastor's, you know, idea. This has come from God. We pay our pastors and we pay them because their job is a full-time job, right? They are, as we see here, to direct the affairs of church. They are to organize the church. They are to labor in teaching and preaching. We see elsewhere they are to equip the saints for good works. To be a pastor means it's a full-time job and so we pay them. So let's think practically here. The way that we are paid here, uh, the amount that we are paid at Southside for a minister uh, is given to us by our denomination. So the Presbyterian Church comes up with the number. We pay our senior pastor the kind of average for uh, someone in our position, right? So not higher, not lower. It's generally the average amount for the senior guy. Okay, so that's how much we're paid. And then we pay them to work full time, right? So I know what you're thinking, right? And it's a good joke that you're thinking, geez, it's a lot of money for one day of work, right? And listen, that's funny, right? You're, you're humorous to come up with that joke. It's unique. We've never heard that before, and I'm not bitter about it either. But, right, let me point out that the, the idea here is we work full-time, and just to give you what it looks like for us here at Southside, our expectation for our pastors, for Ryan, for Ross, for myself, is that we work at least 50 hours a week, and then if you're preaching, it means we work more than 60. Now, I'm not comparing with you, right? I'm not competing in terms of let's look at how many hours that we work. Actually, I don't care about the competition. And to be honest, we're, we'll be held accountable to God for what we do. So that kind of trumps you, unfortunately. But I just want to point out that this is a full-time job, right? This is not a, we don't just turn up on a Sunday and open up our Bible and just go for it. This is something that we work out for all, all the week. So what Paul says is pay them, right? Pay them so they can labor in this. Pay them so they don't have to work somewhere else. Pay so they can give themselves wholeheartedly to the work of the gospel here at the church, right? So that's number one. We honor them financially. Number two, double honor. We honor them with our value. We honor them with respect. We value our leaders. Now, I know that this is hard in Australia because in Australia, we don't value leaders, I mean, it's, it's just cultural, right? Like, it's our God-given right in Australia to pay out our leaders. You know, if we think about the election a couple of months ago, right, man, our leaders got smashed in that. It's just cultural. That's just, it's not good, but it's kind of how we interact in our society with leaders. What Paul is calling us to is different here. He's calling us to actually honor and respect our leaders, our pastors. Now, the big question is why? Why should we honor our leaders? Why should we honor our pastors? And so, again, I just want to want you to appreciate the awkwardness of what I'm about to do. I'm going to explain to you, I think, why Paul says we should honor our leaders. Uh, this week was talking to Ross and Ryan about what it's like to be a pastor. 
And so in the kind of awkwardness and the weirdness of it, I'm going to walk through, I think, five things of why I think Paul calls us to honor our leaders. I just want to say up front, I'm not comparing, okay? I know that our job is not alone in the struggles and the things that we face. I'm also not complaining, okay? I love my job. I think it is an honor and a privilege to be a part of it. Uh, I'm not competing with you, right? This isn't a competition, but hopefully as I explain what it's like to be a pastor, it might give an idea into why we're called to honor them in this way. Okay, so five things. Number one, being a pastor is a spiritually weighty job. Okay, I don't know if you saw it there in verse 21, but he says, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, do this stuff, right? Keep these instructions. It's a spiritually weighty job where our boss is God, right? So everything we do has a spiritual weight to it. And not only that, but everything we do has a spiritual weight to it because we know everything we do matters, right? We know that um, everything has a sense of spiritual realities behind it, where heaven and hell are real. We feel that. There's a spiritual weight to our job when it comes to something like preaching. Preaching is this kind of 30 to 40 minute on a, uh, moment on a Sunday where we get to engage in spiritual warfare, but this often takes us 20 to 30 hours of spiritual highs and spiritual lows to write. Now, you know, you might be sitting there going, well, 20 to 30, yeah, that seems like a lot. How does that kind of work? And again, to give you a practical insight into that, this week's sermon was about 5,000 words. And as I wrote it, we want to feel the weight of that. We want to feel punched by that. We want to understand what God is saying to me first, right? I don't want to get up here and say something that I'm not convicted by. So I want to feel that. I want to challenge that. I want to read uh, what God is saying in this passage, what other people said about this passage. And it's just a spiritual journey of highs and lows where I can get home some days and I'm on top of the world and other days I can be crushed just in trying to write a sermon. So number one, it's spiritually weighty. Number two, we are often on the front line of different things. Right now, this obviously means lots of good things and great things. So we're on the front line for things like weddings, where it's a privilege to be a part of a, a wedding. We're on the front line of, you know, things like hearing about people having kids and stuff like that. That's amazing. We get to be on the front line for the greatest things in terms of people becoming Christians. We get to witness that and walk with people in that. But we're also on the front line for really difficult things. Things like death. Things like people's hurt. People's suffering. When, when people walk away from their faith. And hear us, it's a privilege to walk in that. But it does weigh. There's a weight to that. And let me be real, the, the worst part of my job, and it's a privilege, but the worst part of my job is non-Christian funerals. Man, that just breaks you. So we're on the front line for stuff. Now we get that, we understand, that the, we understand it, but it's a weight to bear. Number three, our lives are on display. Our lives, there's no hiding. Our lives are on display. I think this is actually what uh, Paul is talking about at the end there in verse 24 and 25, where he's saying, um, you know, the deeds of some would be obvious, some won't be obvious, but eventually it's going to come out. The good deeds, you know, even if they're hidden, won't remain hidden. Our lives are on display, right, for everyone to see. And um, it's normal, but uniquely kind of strange because what happens is with our lives on display, the reality of that is here at church, you know, we give at church and then out of that giving, you know, we pay our pastors. So everyone kind of feels invested in what you do. 
Everything's on display. So everyone's invested in your performance. Everyone's invested in the time you spend doing stuff. Everyone's invested in your day off. Everyone's invested in, you know, your holidays. Everyone's invested in everything that you do. There is no hiding what we do. Now, I'm not complaining. I'm not comparing. It's just the nature of it. So that's number three. Number four, we often cop the blame for stuff. Again, not unique. Other jobs are like this too. But as a pastor, we often cop the blame for stuff. You know, the saying is, hurt people hurt people. And as hurt people, we like to blame people, and it's easy to blame the pastor. It's just, he's an easy target. And so we cop the blame for stuff that, that we have done. You know, that our faults, we're sinful people. We're weak humans as well. But we often cop the blame for stuff we didn't do. And we often cop the blame for stuff that the only reason we're copying the blame is because we were the only people invested. So I, in the short time that I've kind of been a pastor, I've been abused on the phone for being the only Christian guy someone knew. I've been blamed for people's faith. I've been blamed for their lack of faith. I've been told that I'm doing a terrible job and that I should be sacked. We just cop stuff. Just get blamed for stuff. And I'm not complaining about it. Hurt people hurt people. It's not the way that it should be, but it's the way that it is. And so we understand that's just part of the job, which isn't a great part of the job, but it is the nature of it. So that's number, and that's number four. And then number five, the last thing it means, and it's not, you know, there's more things to it, but the last thing it means is that our family is put in a unique position. Our wives and our kids are given a unique and sometimes unbiblical and ungodly burden to bear, and that can be crushing to our families. Not only that, but our family is put in unique positions where often they cop got people complaining about their husband who's not doing a good job. I just soak that in for a moment. Like your husband that you, you love, your partner that you love and you're invested in and you see what they're going through and they just get people's complaints about their husbands. They, they got to do something with that. On top of that, our wives, our families have a unique burden to bear in that they have to pick us up when we've been emotionally and spiritually crushed. You know, I'm very grateful for my wife and <laughs> sorry i can't tell you the amount of times that elizabeth picked me up from tears on the ground and said you can do this god's got you now listen i'm not complaining but that's a burden that our families have to bear now in this my hope is <laughs> sorry i'll push through i just keep talking and then i'll stop um my, I'm not comparing, right? And I'm not competing and I'm not complaining. It's a God-given privilege that I have to be here. And I'm actually so thankful for it. But I think when we understand why and what a pastor goes through, that we, we actually start to get why. Paul says, let's value them. Let's honor them. Let's give them money, sure. <laughs> but Let's actually just respect what they do and help them. Now, it's not saying that pastors are untouchable, right? We see this here. He says, if there's an accusation against an elder in kind of verse 19, then let's not just own it if it's from one. Let's, if there's a couple more, let's actually bring. The pastor's not untouchable, but we are called to value. We are called to honor our leaders. 
Now, again, I hope you can appreciate the awkwardness of it, the weirdness of it. I hope that we don't preach on 1 Timothy again while I'm here, so I don't have to talk about this. In jest, I say that. But um, he says here, the, the third thing it means for us to engage in the message is that we honor our leaders. Now, how do we do that? I don't know. You know, I don't know. Practically, you know, how you can do that, I'd encourage you to wrestle with what it means for you to honor your leaders. To, to honor the pastors. I, I'd, enc- I'd encourage you to think about what that means. And we felt that here at church before. We've been encouraged. We've been, you know, people have made grand gestures to us. We've been given stuff. We have felt that before. But we've also felt the opposite of that. We've been lashed out in people's hurt and, and often the end of passive-aggressive jokes and lots of different things. And so just to kind of encourage you in this space to think through what does it mean for us to honor our leaders, to value our leaders, to respect our leaders. The third thing it means for us to engage in the mess is that we honor our leaders. What's the fourth? We see this from chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. The fourth thing it means to engage in the mess is that we engage in the mission of God. Listen to how he says this. He says to slaves, verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. You see the point of this? It's so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not, uh, should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. The fourth thing it means for us to engage in the mess is that we engage in the mission of God. Right now, did you see how he pointed this? He was talking to slaves here. And he says to slaves, be such a good slave that God's name is known, not slandered. Right now, let's not get caught up with what slaves, you know, the, why he's talking about slaves and why he doesn't, you know, slaves back then were different, okay? They were just different. That was the nature of it. So slaves today, you know, we would outright and say that that's not okay, but slaves back then were just different. It was like a job for them. It wasn't kind of as good as a job, but it wasn't as bad as what we think of slaves. Context is gone, right? It's faded. The closest thing we have to slaves now is just working But the principle here is whatever you're doing, wherever you go, wherever you kind of scatter, engage in the mission of God, right? So what it means for us to engage in the mess is that we engage in the mission of God, that we actually take responsibility here for God's name being known and not slandered, right? I mean, that's what he says here. So whether you're working or whether you're at home, whether you're... um, Working at home, whether you're studying, whether you're um, a part-time worker, whether you're retired, whether you're a school student or a uni student, wherever you go, engage in the mission of God. Engage in the fact that you are God's witness and that you want to live such a good life so that God's name is known and not slandered. See, it's easy for us, the temptation for us is to escape the mess, to run away. Right, to maybe come here on a Sunday and then run and then come back next Sunday and then run. But what it means for us to engage in the mess finally is that we engage in the mission of God, where we actually own God's mission in this world. And we take responsibility for it. So four things of what it looks like to engage in the mess. Number one, we treat each other like family. Number two, we care for the needy. Number three, we value our leaders. Number four, we engage in the mission of God. Now, normally at this point, We would pray, I would pray, and then we would sing in response to God. But this morning, we're actually going to do something a little bit different based on this fourth point, that we are engaging in the mission of God. So hopefully on the way in, you got a salvation card in your service sheet. Uh, I'm going to have a couple of people, Tara and Margaret, are going to walk around. If you didn't get one of them, if you can kind of just make eyes to them, and they'll uh, help you out and give you one of those. Uh, 
there they are in the aisles. Uh, so what we're going to do now as they kind of hand them out uh, is write names of people down that we want to see God save. Right? So you only need to write down the first name. God knows who you're talking about. You don't have to write their full name in that moment. But write down who, you would, who you're going to commit to praying for. And then what we're going to do is we're actually going to pray for them. Right? So we did this on Friday night, and you can see the evidence over here. It's what we've kind of called a salvation wall or pin board. And what we're going to do is we're going to take those names of people that you're praying for, and we're going to write them down, and we're going to pin them to the wall, and we're going to commit to, as a church, praying for these people. Right? Because we want to engage in the mission of God. And we believe that God hears our prayers and does stuff. Now, if you don't have a pen, hopefully someone in your aisle can help you out. Tara and Margaret might have some as well. But here's what we're going to do. I'm going to encourage you in a moment to write down the names of people that you're praying for on that card. Again, just feel free to write their first name. You don't have to write, God knows who you're talking about. Then I'm going to ask that you would actually bring that card to the front, and Zach's going to be standing down here, and he's going to collect them. Then I'm going to encourage you, after you bring them down the front, if you can go back and begin praying for these people. Pray that God would do a work in these people's hearts, that God would use you as you engage in the mission of God. And then after that, I'm going to pray, and then we'll respond in singing together. Okay, does that make sense? So what I'm going to ask, number one, write the names down. Number two, bring them down to Zach. Number three, go back to your seat and pray for people. Number four, I'm going to pray. If you did this on Friday, please don't feel free to do it again. Although if you thought of someone that you'd like to pray for, then I encourage you to do so as well. So Jeff's going to come up and play some music for us. And then uh, let's go and do that and begin praying for God, uh, praying to God that he would do this work. And then I'll pray in a moment after we've kind of done that. Cool, let's go. Let's pray together. God, thank you that when we think about our mess, that you didn't run away, but that you engaged in it. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us and saving us from our sin. Thank you for uniting us to you and uniting us to each other in our family. Lord, we pray that you would help us to engage in the mess. We pray that you'd help us to treat each other like family, that you'd help us to care for those in need, you'd help us to honor our leaders, and that you'd help us to engage in the mission of God. And it's here, Lord, that we want to pray, and we want to pray for the mission. We want to pray for what you're doing in this world, and we want to pray for the people that we've just written down. God, you're not done yet. You're not finished saving people. And so we pray that you would save these people, Lord, you know their stories and you know their journeys and you know what they're going through. You know what our people are struggling with. You know what hope they're holding on to and how that hope is failing them. And so, God, we pray that by your grace and that by your spirit that you would save them. God, we pray that you would use weak vessels like us as we engage in the mess and engage in the mission of God, we pray that we might get to see your work here. God, we are optimistic. We are expectant of what you're doing in this world. And so we plead and pray for this end as we engage in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.